And so would you pray with me? Oh God, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. This morning, we are continuing in the first John series that we've been going through. Uh, and especially a few weeks back, I preached on confidence out of uh, a previous passage in chapter 3. And we're actually going to continue on that theme of confidence, our confidence in God. We talked about our confidence before God. We're going to hope to continue that in our confidence in God. So in preparation of that, would you turn with me to 1 John? It's kind of all the way in the back of the Bible. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. 1 John, flip back. 1 John chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 16 through the end of the chapter, 16 through 21. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not yet been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. The word of the Lord, it is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. So the question, are you ready? Are you ready? When do you get those sorts of questions, right? Like maybe, maybe you've been preparing for something for a long time, a presentation, right? Uh, or, or a big day, like a celebration, graduation, right? That's coming up. Like someone who wants you to know whether you're excited or are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for this event? Are you ready for this day? We ask that when we're looking forward to something upcoming, important, consequential, right? And so we prepare, and we've been anxious probably in that preparation, and so in care for other people, we tend to ask, are, are you ready for it? We ask that for things that we believe will be surely upcoming in this world. And yet, as Christians, we believe that nothing is so sure Nothing is so sure upcoming except the day of judgment. The 
only thing promised to you. You're not even promised to die before the day of judgment. The only thing promised to you is that Jesus is coming back and he will judge the world. That is the most sure, upcoming, important, consequential event of our lives, of indeed of this world. And so are you ready? Are you ready for the day of judgment? Would you fear punishment? Or will you hope in reward? This is a question that is predominant in Scripture. And it is a question that we need to examine this morning because John wants us to have confidence for the day of judgment. Confidence in the day of judgment. So if we are to be prepared for judgment, this is our thesis, right? If we are to be prepared for judgment, then we must be perfected in love. If we are to be prepared for judgment, we must be perfected in love. And our confidence in preparation and perfection is in God. Our confidence is in God. Okay, so we're going to move through two parts here. We're going to explain the judgment, and I'm going to exhort you to love. Right? Explain the judgment, exhort you to love. Okay? If we are to be prepared for judgment, all right, I... I have not heard judgment preached on very often. And yet, friends, I would, <laughs> Elizabeth can tell you, I had way more ideas than we can talk about right now. I would preach all year on this, okay? Not because I'm trying to scare you with fire and brimstone, but because, as I said in the actual preamble, him we proclaim. Why? Warning everyone and teaching everyone that we might present you pure and blameless before him. This is in every New Testament book. Judgment, whether we see it or not, is not just replete through Scripture. It is actually one of the most foundational promises of the gospel. Okay? That God judges and will finally judge all of creation is one of the most axiomatic beliefs of the church and of God's people. It accounts for God's promises. It accounts for how people understand those promises when they don't yet seem to be fulfilled. It accounts for our need for a savior, right? To will come to destroy the impediments to judgment, to heal us. It accounts for the belief in resurrection, for morality, for care for one another. If everything just faded into existence, many of these things would seem a bit unnecessary. But God will bring all things to account and restore all things to its very goodness. And so, all of these things, therefore, we need to understand because they all contribute to our preparation, okay? It's one of the most axiomatic truths of Scripture. I would challenge us as we read through the Old Testament. Read through the Psalms. Psalm 75, Psalm 96, Psalm 98. Rejoice, all you peoples. The rivers and the streams and the fields and the mountains, they clap their hands for joy. Why? Because God is coming. He comes to judge the earth in righteousness 
and with equity will judge the peoples. The call for celebration in Israel and indeed in all the world is that God is judge. Genesis, through the prophets, into every New Testament book is the promise that God will judge. It's a critical part of the gospel story that we proclaim. In fact, I don't know if you've ever looked at this, how does the Old Testament end? Does anyone know what the last book of the Old Testament is? Malachi. If you want, you can turn with me if you'd like to, to Malachi 4. It's right before Matthew. This is how the book that God ordained to be the last book of the Old Testament, the last chapter of the Old Testament, this is how it ends. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, with all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming and shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing and its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves. And then it ends with, Behold, I will send you Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Every gospel, our four gospels, there's a lot of difference in some of the Gospels. Do you know how they all begin? With John the Baptist, who they are linking to Elijah, who they are linking to the one who comes to prepare the way of the Lord. And then whenever they highlight John, such as in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, right? This is how Mark begins. The shortest, it's not the first of the Gospels, but it's the shortest one. Right? In the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. As one voice crying in the wilderness, John came baptizing. And then Jesus of Nazareth appeared. And it was revealed that he was the son of God. And he proclaimed, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn, that's what repent means. Turn, okay? Turn toward God and believe in the gospel. What is the gospel? Many of you have probably grown up in evangelical churches and you could give me some sort of step thing about the gospel. The, gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand. That is the good news that Jesus comes to preach. That is what you turn towards. What is the kingdom of God being at hand? It is the coming judgment of the Lord. Kings judged. A kingdom is where the king would judge his people. This is the good news, the foundational aspect of the good news that begins our New Testament. And we are actually called to celebrate that. Now, I don't know about you, I grew up with a sense of judgment that doesn't tend towards celebration, right? If I thought, rejoice, I've got good news for you, and you're like, what is it? And it's like, you're going to be judged. You laugh, right? Okay, but this is the call to rejoice at the judgment. 
But we tend to associate, even as John points out here, we tend to associate judgment almost exclusively, even synonymously, with punishment. But this, while not incorrect, is not a full account. There's a misconception. So let me talk about judgment here. Okay, there are two foundational functions of judgment that I want to highlight for us, particularly in Scripture. The first one, the one that we might understand a bit more, is evaluation. Judgment is evaluation. God as an evaluator who determines value, right? This might be the imagery of scales, which actually is not very common in Scripture, but we tend to think about it that way. Like maybe you imagine you're going to stand before God and he's going to have his book and going to have his checklist, right? That's what you imagine maybe judgment is like. There's some truth to that. Paul talks about that in Romans, very beginning of Romans, right? Each man will be judged according to his works, whether those who pursued life and righteousness, they'll go into eternal life, and those who pursued corruption and decay, they will go into eternal destruction, according to, on that day, as Paul says, according to my gospel, when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. And not only people, but our works. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians, his letter to the 1 Corinthians. He's talking about the foundations that we build. There's one foundation, Christ, so let each of us be careful of how we build upon it. For in that day, all works will be revealed whether gold and silver and diamonds or straw and wood and hay, all things will be revealed as through fire. Some will burn up, some will last. You will be saved, but only as through fire. And so even the elect, everyone is judged according to their works, and your works themselves will be judged as by fire. This is a recurring part of what the apostolic message is. So God, in a way, is actually evaluating the character and quality of your life as by fire. That's true. But we misconceive of judgment if that's the only way that we understand what's being proclaimed here. Because it's hard to imagine why that's such good news that should cause all the nations to rejoice, right? That evaluation is not the primary function of judgment. It serves the primary function of judgment, which is restoration. You might even say that the second function of judgment, restoration or adjudication, You see, how does a king judge between a case? Well, someone has to bring it to him. There's a complainant in court. There's a petitioner. If there's a defendant, someone has brought a charge. One of the most central aspects, we actually heard it in the call to worship about who God is, is that he will hear 
the cries of the poor. He will hear cries of the suffering. Abel's blood cried out to God from the ground. Okay? The, the afflictions and sufferings of the people in Egypt cried out to God and he heard them. The sins of Sodom and Gomorrah and those who were harmed by them cried out to God. It is because of these crying outs that God comes to judge. He judges because he hears those who have complaint. He hears. And that is good news. That is good news if you feel like you are not heard. If you suffer under the burdens of an oppressor, of affliction, of addiction, of abusers. The blood of the little children who were just slain cried out to God from the ground. That is his own promise. And he promises to hear them and act justly. Judgment exists because God does not forget. And he will restore to those who are slain and slandered and suffered. In fact, this is a lot of the language that can make us very uncomfortable in the Old Testament. Psalm 58 ends, and the righteous will rejoice when what? They see the vengeance, and they will bathe their feet in the blood of their enemies, and the people will say, surely there is a God who judges. Surely there is a God who cares for his people. The sign that God finally will care and restore all things for his people is that he will destroy their enemies. And that's why it can be difficult if we only see judgment in the sense that you are the object of judgment and you only see yourself as an offender. It can be difficult to understand why it's good news that God will judge. It's good news to the person that you've offended. It's good news to the one who hasn't been heard. It's not terribly good news to the one who's wicked and has offended. This is the foundation of judgment that is coming in. Paul even says that to the church. In 2 Thessalonians, that God would consider it worthy to bring you into his kingdom. Why? And repay those who have afflicted you. And he will be just to afflict vengeance on them. Now this can seem heavy. But it actually is one of the, new, the, the things that we have to remember about the gospel, that it is a foundational aspect that everyone will have their day in court. That is why everyone will be resurrected, to have their day in court. And so, are you prepared? Are you prepared to face the charges of your accusers? Are you prepared to have the litany of your wrongdoing, not just because God is very particular, but because he hears the cries of all those who have suffered on account of them? 
we will be evaluated, all of us. In order to be prepared for this, though, we have to be perfected in love. To be prepared for this judgment, we have to be perfected in love. You cannot perfect yourself. Even if you could make it so that no one actually has any case against you, which you can't, okay? Even if that was so, God is also an evaluator. This is a lot of what the Paul and the apostles are getting into and they're trying to reckon with. If you could make yourself perfect, then why has no one done it? <laughs> if the law was sufficient for Israel to make them perfect, why are they still under judgment? We have to be perfected in love. And did you hear how this started? God is love. Earlier in the passage, in verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the atonement of our sins, the acknowledgement, the taking, the cleansing, the healing of our sins. Friends, to be perfected in love is most foundationally to receive from the God who promises judgment that the judge is Jesus, who is love. The good news is not that you will not be judged. The good news is that you're going to be judged by Jesus. And Jesus willingly submitted himself to suffering and affliction and pain and slander and bore the weight not only of the lash and our abandonment, but the wrath of God in crucifixion so that he could love us, not only identifying with the sufferer, but taking on the sins of the one who causes suffering. He is just and justifier. And he took all that pain into himself that he might be perfect love to love us. We have to let him love us. We have to believe what John is saying here. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. If anything is to be perfected, it first has to be laid. Christ has laid a perfect foundation of love. There is no way to stand the judgment outside of Christ Jesus. There is no way. And this is a hard word. Because what that means is that victimhood is not an excuse. God will hear victims. But victims, like everyone else, also will be evaluated. And no one can withstand the fire of judgment. 
unless they are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Certainly not the wicked. We all must be clothed, suffer and sinner alike, and we are a combination of both, aren't we? A lot of my sin comes from my suffering, and I suffer because of my sin and other people's sin, and then I cause more suffering because I don't like their sin and I'm wounded. You know what I'm saying? Hurt people hurt people. We all have to be covered in Christ's righteousness. We all have to let his atoning blood cover us. But it's not just so that you can stand in the judgment. Okay? It's not like so your life can just remain as it is, so you can just get through the judgment. Have you, did, did you notice this here? That we might have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, also are we in this world. As he is. And how is he? God is love. He is love love, so also are we in this world. God has given us a foundation, a perfect foundation of love in which to grow up into love, <laughs> to be perfected in love. See, there's a purpose, <laughs> there's an intention to God's life-giving sacrifice. Did you hear what Missy read for us? Bear fruit. In this my Father is glorified, that you might bear fruit. How do you bear fruit? You abide in me. How do you abide in me? You obey my commandments. What is my commandment? That you would love one another. And so others would come in. And this is a fascinating mechanism that I certainly do not have time to elaborate on uh, at this time. But Think about it this way. Love, as especially as it might relate to sinning, has an aspect of ceasing your harm, of restoring, of forgiveness, of reconciliation. One of the surest ways, I'd probably say, to withstand a judgment is not only to be innocent, uh, but to reconcile with your accuser before you go to court. If no one's bringing charge against you, well, then there's no charge against you, right? You see what I'm saying? God is creating a new people, not just that he wants to clothe so all their filth can be covered and they can be cleansed from the judgment, but that he, they can be cleansed, that a new people can exist, that God's glory would not just be manifest in the washing out of the wicked, but the reclaiming of the wicked into a new reconciled family of God where both sinner and sufferer come to the table to meet in forgiveness and restoration. Think of it this way. If I, if I thieved against you, and I was brought to conviction by the great love of Christ and his forgiveness of me. I need to stop thieving, okay? 
period. I cannot love my neighbor if I steal from him. Right? Right? Okay, good, okay. Just had some blank stares. I want to make sure that we were clear on that because I was like, I can't keep going if that's not clear. Okay. Okay. I cannot love my neighbor who I do see if I wrong him or her. But would also, because of the love of Christ who has given me his righteousness, who has not only canceled my debt but given to me, it's going to mean restoring what I have taken. Right? I can't really have like, oh, now I love you, brother, and I'm so sorry I took your boat. I'm not going to do it again. And then I keep the boat, right? That's your boat. You got to get that boat back. Also, and this is sometimes difficult for us, in Scripture, you always have to give reparation. Always. You don't just get to get back the boat. You steal my cow, you give me four more. Read through the law, right? If I stole your boat, let's say I stole your car in which you had to get rid of, you had to get to work. Well, now you've missed work. Now your employer's mad at you. Now, now, you don't, now you don't have any money. Now people think you're lazy. Your name, your life has been affected by my wrongdoing. For me, even to give you back your car does not recognize the suffering and affliction that I have caused by that thievery. And so it is not sufficient in love to merely restore what is taken. It has to be repaired. This is why God is calling us into a place where we share our lives with one another. And even that reparation, right? You gotta stop, you gotta restore, you gotta repair, and that is reconciliation. Because we're not now just two distinct people and now I'll have nothing to do with you once I clear this thing out of my way. We're brothers and sisters. We've got to live together in a new family called by a new name. That is a radical, uncomfortable existence that someone who has been afflicted and someone who is afflicting are now coming together to be brother and sister. And yet that is what God is doing to actually create a new life with them. Because in his perfect love, he's adopted them in. Which then also means, this isn't just for the wrongdoer. The wronged have to forgive. Forgiveness is not a quick thing. We're not talking about just like cheap forget and forgive. You can't forgive something you forget. But to forgive them to accept their efforts and their repentance, and even in my own Christ-following, sacrificing, laying my life down, love, to restore and even go into a relationship with someone who has wronged me. That's what God is building. And what's important about that for us is our sense of confidence in the day of judgment. We can't do this if we're not being filled and built up on the foundation of Christ's own love for us. That here's our suffering 
and heals our sins. That's how we hold our hands up and say he's just and justifier. That there's nothing else to do but to work out in that same love with which he has loved us. We can have confidence that this is his own work. He is not putting it into effect for it to fail. He is surely doing it. And thus we have to obey him. We have to participate in this love because then what we will find in the judgment is rather than us arriving in fear of punishment that all of our secrets are going to be exposed and that we will be cast away. We've already confessed our secrets because we trust that Christ knows them already. We've always confessed that they're wrongdoing and trusted in God's promise of forgiveness. We've already seek to restore things to our neighbors. And our neighbors will come who are brothers and sisters and they will talk about their forgiveness. I will see my wretchedness as taken by Christ. I will see theirs as taken by Christ. They will forgive me. I will seek to restore. There's no case being brought. It's just this abounding of forgiveness and restoration and love and thankfulness. What could be more praising to a king who has to judge a case that his children come before him? Not with, Mom, he did this, but thank you for loving us. See the work that you have done, O Lord, that we have reconciled with one another. That will be to the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ and as he promises to your eternal joy. To your eternal joy. This is the confidence that we have in him. That he is surely at work among us building his intention of love. And so will you put your confidence in him? Will you obey his commandments to love? And will you trust that the day of judgment and fire and terror will not be for you punishment, but the revelation of all the good promises that God has been at work in you? That's what he wants. Let's pray to that end. Lord, do come. Restore this world and your judgment and give us the confidence in your perfect, sacrificial, atoning love. And may we grow in it. May we abide in you as branches in the vine. Bear fruit in us and be glorified in us, in the way that we love, because you first loved us. We give you thanks, Lord Jesus, that you chose us to so show forth your love. And all God's people said, amen.